Welcome to a special edition of Just Ask the Question, recorded live from the National Press Club, Friday, April 29th, 2022. All right, well then we'll start. And listen, I, I want to thank everybody for being here today. Uh, I'm Brian and probably the lesser known of the three people here. Uh, Sam, you've known for years covering the White House. Jim, you know for covering. Jim and I were like uh, bunker buddies during the war. We were the two who had our press passes pulled during uh, Trump and, and had to fight him in court. And I, I'm here today to, you know, ostensibly to sell a book called Free the Press, and you can buy it wherever fine books are sold, and you can pick it up any year. Uh, we even have a few out there. So, yes, please, buy early, buy often. Uh, but there was, during the course of writing this book, I came across something that I thought was pretty important to talk about, and that was uh, the White House and how to cover it, and how it's been covered, and how it needs to change, and how it has changed. And, uh, with two like-minded individuals. One of the best parts of this book is the foreword. The foreword was written by a guy named Sam Donaldson. <laughs> One of the best forewords ever written. <laughs> and so I saw his name on it. I bought the book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's I a think tough we got room. Going here. Yes. These yeah. late-night comedians. These I they knew got Johnny knocking Carson. on us. I knew David Letterman. I knew these people. I knew Letterman. <laughs> he, he's we're no David Letterman. <laughs> but um, the, the, uh, so uh, getting these people together, I wanted to talk a little bit about where we were and where we are and where we're going. And, uh, and the White House is one of the most important beats on the planet. And reporters there cover a wide variety of things. And um, I'll start by telling, you know, my, my first time in the White House briefing room, I met this guy. It, it, he won't remember the first time I met him, but it was in 84. And we were both covering, we were in South Texas. January 13th. <laughs> was that what it was? <laughs> and we were both in South Texas. I had just spent my first time on the zoo plane. And for those of you who don't know the zoo plane, that's where the technicians and reporters flying, covering someone running for president or president flies in a plane. I was introduced to the fine art of aisle surfing. And so, you know, the plane takes off and you can take the plastic placard. And I'm going, all right, this is, this is where I want to be for the rest of my life. And so we lined up at a press briefing, and I got to outshout him for a question. And I, I thought, I, I've arrived. Bad laryngitis that day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, my first time in the briefing room was in 86. And the, one of the first people I met there was Helen Thomas. And Helen brought me in, and uh, she knew some of my family. My family had helped bring part of her family over from Lebanon. And uh, she took me home that night made me a great Lebanese dinner. But she introduced me to everyone in there. And I call my podcast Just Ask the Question because of something Helen told me that day. She said, Brian, don't ever be afraid to ask a question. You may not get an answer. You may not like the answer. They may avoid the answer. But the question will be on the record. And they cannot, therefore, in the future, deny that it's been brought up to them. 
Then she introduced me to Sam again and said, he's the guy that'll teach you how to yell so you get your questions answered. <laughs> and so that first day led to, I had been back and forth and back and forth in the briefing room for many years. Uh, and spent some time there on in a number of administrations. And then, of course, uh, towards the end of Obama, came back and spent a lot of time there. And there was nothing like anything I'd ever seen covering Donald Trump's administration. And um, <laughs> I remember watching uh, Jim just trying to get a question out and not and being shut down because he was from CNN. I remember watching others try to go through what we had done in the past normally had become something that was, you know, asking questions as Sam had, as I do, as Jim does, was mainstream. But now we were not. We were, we were looked at as, you know, you're not sitting still, you're not minding yourself, you're not behaving yourself. And we became the enemy of the people. Be a great title for a book. <laughs> if, if you haven't bought it, that's a great book to read too. And if you haven't bought, hold on, Mr. President. Come on. Yeah, that, that, I I read that when I was, and he signed it. God bless you. But that book that you wrote as a young reporter for me meant so much because it 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 gave me uh, focus where I had none really. Well, I had some, but I I was able to laser point my focus on what I thought it was needed to be a good reporter based on some of the things that Sam said. And one of the things that Sam said in his book that I take to heart to this day is, I don't care, I don't give, I don't get upset with an administration for trying to put their best foot forward. That's their job. It's our job to hold them accountable. And there seems to be less of that these days. And so that's the jumping off point that I wanted to start with was, Sam, your quote. And I guess we'll, we'll, we'll start with you and let you talk a little bit about what you've seen and Jim, talk a little bit about what you've seen, and we'll, we'll ask each other. We're going to try and engage in a conversation, and then we'll open it up to you guys if you have questions as well. But uh, as this, and honestly, and I say this with all reverence and all respect, uh, I mean, I tease him a lot. He, he's teased me on a few occasions. But um, Sam Donaldson is the gold standard to me for how you cover a White House. Um, never... I saw you speak one time when I was still in college, and he said, you will never be, if we're doing our job right, you should never be able to tell who it is we voted for personally, because we give everybody grief equally. And that's, uh, that's also a maxim I've lived with my whole life. So with that, my professional mentor, I have no problem saying that, one of my professional mentors, the guys I looked up to the most were uh, that generation coming up. Not that you're, you know, old like me. But um, <laughs> are you 88? <laughs> I am. That's, I have shoes that old. I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, you know, gold standard. I mean, sometimes if you live long enough, no matter what you've done, unless it's just terrible, you become a legend. And the word legend is one word away from the word calcified. <laughs> so forget that. I went down to the White House the first time in the press room when. Pierre Salinger was there. It was uh, late in 1961. I was working. I'd gotten a job with the local CBS station, then owned by the Washington Post. I was not a White House correspondent, so you say, well, how, how did you get down there? I showed my Exxon card. I mean, I called down from the press room at the WTOP and said, I'd like to come down. There was a little ceremony of some sort. Okay, what's your name? I gave it. 
When I got down there, I may have showed a driver's license rather than the Exxon card, but there was no magnetometer. There was no who really are you and who do you represent. They took my word for it. I wasn't carrying anything, but in subsequent visits, I knew that if you had a valise or something, again, before the magnetometers, before Ronald Reagan was shot, uh, you carried it in, set it down in the Rose Garden. Here came the president. Fine. And of course, there's a real reason that everybody knows why that's no longer the security routine. I went to two or three of the press conferences that President Kennedy held, had no courage to try to ask a question. I mean, the big shots were asking it, particularly two women, May Craig and Sarah McClendon. They were tough, and they could get away with it because, wow, woman, you know. That's the way they were treated, but they knew how to exploit that. And the other reporters I noticed were very courteous. Mr. President, sir, uh, would you mind telling us if it's, if it's all right, whether you think the bill is satisfactory or not? What does this is? It occurred to me finally, as the years began to go by, our job was to ask a question that the public would like to have the answer to, or we hoped they would, and do it directly not rudely, but very directly, and not have four questions. Mr. President, are you going to sign the bill tomorrow? And by the way, are you going to visit Afghanistan? And could we also ask about whether the puppy in the garden is yours or whether you've... Um, no. <laughs> One did question. It, did it poop on the ground? That's the one I remember. And when I then, later on in my career, got to cover the White House and, and cover presidents, uh, by this time, something else had happened to the press corps. Uh, because in my first few years in Washington, I noticed that the big shots wanted to be friends, social friends, with the people they covered. Hey, Senator so-and-so, we had dinner the other night, and particularly it was the President of the United States. I admired Ben Bradley, so when he retired from the Washington Post as the executive editor, I did a retirement interview for our program, then called Primetime Live, with, on ABC with Diane Sawyer. My own plug, but it's not in existence, so you can't buy it. Great show. That's she right. went to my high school, by the way. Did she? Yeah. Which is a fine and very good journalist. Yeah. But uh, the point is, I said to Ben, Ben, when you were with the president, I mean, were you aware of the women that uh, we now know he had great affections for at Syriatum? Well, he said, I wasn't. And then he looked at me and said, you don't believe me, do you? I said, well. I get to ask the questions, you get to give the answers. He said, when I was with the president, almost always it was with our wives, and that is not a milieu. He said, I mispronounced later the word milieu in France. It is not a milieu where the subject of adultery comes up easily and often. Ha, <laughs> practice line. But the, but the days when the press corps wanted to be social friends because they wanted to be part of the establishment. I mean, with no disrespect, they were great journalists there, but uh, Scotty Reston, uh, again, Ben Bradley, other people that I came to admire greatly as people in the profession, are over. They were over because Lyndon Johnson and his people lied to us. Maybe Lyndon didn't know he was lying. Maybe he was taking all the body counts that uh, Halberstam and Sheehan and Malcolm Brown proved to be wrong from Vietnam, but he was there. And then along came the trick, Richard Nixon. And by this time, I think most of us in my generation understood that 
we didn't disrespect them, but we had other people we could be buddies with and have beers with and say, hey, I've seen, what's your name, sir? Danny. I see Danny the other night, rather than, well, I was with the president, you know. <laughs> it's great. And I think that changed, and I guess it's still that way, but I'll let my contemporaries. I'll finish up now by saying I've known the press secretaries beginning with Pluckley Pierre, Pierre Salinger, and uh, many of them since. The ones I covered as White House correspondent, Jody Powell, great guy, lied only once that I know of. Jack Nelson, a great reporter for the LA Times, had gotten wind of the fact that there was a, a raid, a raid to try to free the hostages in Iran coming, and he confronted Jody, who knew everything. Jody and Jimmy were linked at the hip. What one knew, the other one knew. He said, is it true? What's I hear? And Powell lied. He said, no, of course not. What do you, I don't know what you're talking about. I defended that lie later. I mean, a man named Arthur Sylvester, who was secretary of, in the Defense Department for Public Affairs, was confronted with the fact that during the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the administration lied to reporters about what was going on before John Kennedy revealed that we may be going up into thermonuclear war. And he defended it by saying, well, when the administration is going up into thermonuclear war, you have a right to lie. I'm not certain his words were the best, because he didn't mean the administration, he meant the country. There are times, there are moments, you can't be a reporter who defends this principle that you don't want lies from press secretaries to be so absolute that in the circumstance that I've just described, a couple of them, you, you wouldn't make an exception for the sake of your children, let alone your dear self. I've admired them, most of them, Jody, uh, people in the Reagan administration, um, and uh, I'll just tell one more story. I promise to be brief, but I oh, can't no. be. Oh, no, go ahead. One I'm, more story. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm out of all listening to I'm, Sam. So. Yeah. Mike McCurry, I can't to Sam, so. yeah. they, they sent me back for a second tour after 14 years in the White House with Carter and Reagan. I remember this. Or 12 years. Uh, so with Clinton, the second term was not the thing to do. If Scott Fitzgerald was right, second acts in American life, I'd had mine first, and uh, all right. And so now up came Monica, one week after I came back, instead of a lazy second term with nothing going on, and we were all after him, and we all knew that he lied. You say, how can you say that? Well, because on the day the story broke, Bill Clinton had an interview scheduled with Jim Lehrer of the News Hour, and he kept the interview. And we in the press corps were listening to the recording of the interview for later release on the news hour in the press room. And I don't know what you know Jim would have led with normally except for that story. And he ended up by saying, Mr. President, did you have a sexual um, relationship with a White House intern? <laughs> and he said, Jim, I can just, he looked in the camera we saw later, Jim, I can tell you I've never had an inappropriate relationship with anybody here. And we looked at each other. What was the question? The question was not, did you have an inappropriate relationship? The question was, did you have a sexual relationship? The answer should have been yes, or no, <laughs> no, or I don't remember, or up yours, or something. <laughs> that old hound dog had changed the question to answer the question he wanted to think that he could. And we all looked at each other, he's lying, and we went on from there. 
but Mike McCurry at one point during the period before he had to come through before the grand jury or else maybe go to jail, I don't know, but the point is, you don't lie to the grand jury, come on. And he had to confess. Uh, we asked Mike at one point, I cannot remember the subject, it was a minor subject, but had to do with the Monica story. Uh, what about this? And Mike said, I don't know, I don't know. Well, we said, go ask the president, he knows. And Mike said, I'm not going to do that. I said, wait a moment, you're the press secretary. We can't see the president to ask him directly. It's your job to ask it. Why won't you do it? And he said, and this is on the record, I mean, this clearly is in the transcript, because I don't want to lie to you. And I thought, wow, there's my press secretary. <laughs> I want an and answer. there's your answer. I want an answer, but yeah. So thank you for the opportunity to ramble on, and I'll try to be briefer later. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Sam. That was terrific. And Ronald Reagan used to say, oh, Sam. The first time I met Reagan, I walked upstairs, and I was in Upper Press. And you and Helen had just recently been banged. This you can't do anymore. Yeah. Sam and, and Helen used to, and in fact, Joe Lockhart used to tell me stories about he would take coffee and donuts to Helen, who would sit out in Upper Press, and she would, and I go, so Helen, why do you sit there? And, and Joe asked her the same question. He said, she said, you're an idiot to Joe. And he goes, all right, I'll bite. She goes, I can sit here and watch what's going on in this office and learn more than, than you'll ever I tell me. I learned from Helen Thomas. So much when I went to the White House. I thought it was a big shot already. I'd been 10, 12 years in the business. But I mean, she would, some morning when nothing was going on, just kind of amble up toward the North. And I learned to go with her because something was up. She smelled something up. She had something, and I wanted to. I, I never mind following the best. How about you? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I was up there one day, and, and the Secret Service came through, and Larry Speaks, he wanted to, uh, they were clearing us out because uh, Reagan was coming over to speak to Larry. And I, I, I'm 25 years old. I, I was scared to ask a question in the- in 25, the, were you ever? Yeah, yeah, I was never 20. I have shoes that old, right? So I, I, I was afraid that, you know, to be there because they, Secret Service, they're pushing us out. So I turned and I'm a bit clumsy, I admit it. And I turned and I fell on the floor. And uh, as I'm picking myself up, I look up and who's standing over me but Ronald Reagan. And he looks at me and he goes, well, young fella, you don't have to bow in front of me. <laughs> By the way, what was your name? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, I'm sorry. And then, so, I, Jim, I I want to I want to tell a brief story about Jim. No, let Jim yeah, talk. I, wanna, I am gonna let Jim. I'm gonna tell a 30 second story. I, this I is great. I, the time's running out, and yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't have to <laughs> say, say a word. I I admire Jim so much. We were at a a rally together, a Trump rally in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And I was sitting at the, nobody knew I was, I'm sitting at the corner, you know, writing my notes, and this woman, she comes up and she goes, oh, I hate me some Jim Acosta. Oh, he's, you know, uh, he, uh, fake news, fake news. And I, and I go, hmm. She goes, I wonder if I can get my picture with him. And I said, <laughs> I said well, Jim's a pretty friendly guy. He'll, he'll let you. So she, I've got pictures of this, by the way. I said, just go on up and say you want to get your picture. So she walked over to him, put his arm, took a selfie, and she walked off. She goes, I love me some Jim Acosta. Jim Acosta's a great guy. And it was... <laughs> It was just because they got to know you.
In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Right. And, I, and so um, I'll start off with that. You had to deal with a lot in the White House. Sure. But what did you see in the White House that is different from what Sam saw? Well, you started off, uh, you know, talking about the rallies. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention a little bit about that. I mean, one of the things that I ran across is exactly what you said, you know, and, and I went to the rallies because I wanted to see this for myself. You know, is this what, what we as the American people are seeing on our TV screens and on our phones and so on, is, is that the reality of the situation? So I always wanted to go to these rallies. And, you know, people would do exactly what you uh, are saying. They would, they would uh, you know, jeer you. They would say all sorts of things, call you all sorts of names. And then some of them would come over and say, can I, can I get a picture with you? Can we do a selfie? And, um, you know, and occasionally there would be some folks who would give me the middle finger and tell me exactly what to do with myself. <laughs> and I would tell people, I said, listen, this is, this is the way to go about doing it. If you want to get the picture, ask for the selfie first. Do the middle finger second. Because <laughs> if you get them, if you, you reverse them, yeah, you're, you're, not, not, getting the you're not getting the selfie, you know. Uh, so I try to have at least one, one rule for that. But, um, you know, part of the, the story that I tell is, you know, the, obviously I was a reporter for many years before I covered Donald Trump. I didn't just come out of the out of the sky. I wasn't beamed down to earth to cover Donald Trump. And then no matter what the QAnon people say, no matter what the QAnon people, <laughs> JFK Jr. And I came down No. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, I, you know, I worked in local news, you know, when people actually yeah. worked in local news yeah, before they made it to the network level yeah. and worked at CBS news and um, covered a, a lot of stuff at CBS was very proud of that covered Katrina and Iraq and so on. And then Got into politics at CNN, uh, covering uh, the Mitt Romney campaign, covered the second Obama term. And then I said to my bosses, I said, hey, I'd like to go out and cover Donald Trump. I think, you know, I think he's got a shot at, at winning the presidency. And they said, OK, go out there and do it. And I would go out on the campaign trail. Why did you and, think that? And, and why did I think that? That he had a shot. Well, a lot of people remember, said he did. Remember at the time, he was leading in the polls. I right. Mean, you know, people will say, well, why did you guys cover Trump so much? He was dominating in the polls almost throughout the entire Republican yeah. primary process. And so, I mean, it was a story. How could you not cover the front runner? He's the front runner. Right. Um, and, you know, we would go to these rallies and it dawned on me instantly because I'd covered many other, you know, political events, uh, you know, John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, that a Donald Trump rally was a different sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> it was a horse of a different feather. And, you know, when you have a, a presidential candidate saying the sorts of things that he was saying, uh, talking about immigrants the way he would talk about immigrants, talking about the press, and before he called us the enemy of the people in fake news, he would say, there's the dishonest media, there's the disgusting media, they're liars, they're scum, and so on. And we would have thousands and thousands of people inside these venues screaming at us with all sorts of vitriol and hatred that you know, would make a drill sergeant blush. Yeah. And, you know, there would be some events at the end of these rallies, people would come up to us and stick their fingers in our faces and call us traitors. And it dawned on me, having covered a lot of different stuff, that I had never seen anything like this before. And I thought, you know what, if he becomes the president of the United States, this may 
go into the White House. This, this whole act may move over to the White House. And I remember after he got elected, uh, Sam, there was, and you, I'm sure you can relate to this, there was all of this talk, all of this you know, chatter in Washington among all the smart people that the majesty of the presidency would rest upon Donald Trump's shoulders and transform him into the second coming of Ronald Reagan. He Surely he would, the way he acted out on the campaign trail would not be the way he acted inside the White House. And the thought that I had was, well, hold on a second, not to borrow, I do borrow a phrase from Sam, but I would say, hold on a second. This is somebody who said, maybe we should bring back torture. This is somebody who would say, <laughs> I want to lock up my political adversaries uh, to the point that you had crowds of people chanting, lock her up, lock her up. You know, people, we may be numb to this by now. Our outrage sensors may be worn down to a point where, okay, no big deal. But I think with the passage of time, 5, 10, 15 years from now, people are going to look back and say, boy, that's a very peculiar thing that was going on. Yeah, hopefully. A very dangerous I hope, thing. I, that was oh, I hope he's I, right, I believe too. you are right. I, I think that that will be the right. case. And, you know, as he you know, moved into the White House, obviously we had that press conference where he called me fake news. But, you know. Yeah, we all got that one. Yeah, the, he said <laughs> well, that was, be, that was he the. He said you should be fired. Yeah. That, was the, that yeah. was the infamous press conference. You know, CNN had the story that, uh, that the intelligence community had gone to Trump and said, Mr. President-elect, uh, the Russians may have compromising information on you. You need to know that. The existence of that briefing was real news. It was not fake news, but on that, day in January of 2017, he had this press conference nine days before becoming president of the United States, yeah. where he described that story as fake news, called us fake news, and so on. And of course, you know, the thought that I have going into his administration is this is going to get worse. And of course, he calls us the enemy of the people. You know, you have Sean Spicer saying that the, the inauguration was the biggest in the history of the world and so on. <laughs> and every step of the way, I thought we were just, we were moving in a bad direction to a bad place. And when I wrote my book, uh, you know, that was the way I ended the book because it, it came out in 2019 before the insurrection and the pandemic and everything else. I thought, if we end up in a place in this country where we can't agree on a, on a set of facts, if we can't agree on what the truth is, if we're so at each other's throats that we're willing to harm one another in order to win and have power in this country, we're heading in the wrong direction as as one people. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're being we're being fractured into a, into a place where uh, really there you have you know MAGA world and, and everybody else. And I, I I just think that that is a not to take it to a downer sort of bummer level with bummer. this. This discussion, you know, Sam's, Sam's fun to listen to. Your, your stories are great to listen to. But I do think that at the end of the day, um, and maybe we can talk about this yeah, during this discussion, is that we need to get back to a place, in my view, where we're one people again. And that yeah. may sound naive and Pollyannish, but I think having a little bit more faith in the press, a little bit more faith in what we do, getting to know us and what we do is a helpful thing. That's why I'm here I today. I agree. That's why I'm here today. Because I think at the end of the day, that is going to get us back to where we where we need to be as a country. Of course, we're always going to be divided, as Sam knows. You know, you, you know, we, we we've been divided for our exi entire why, existence. That's but why we did here today. Yeah, and I'd really like to have an answer too, because I've been searching, as I think maybe everyone in this room, for how we get back. And yeah. I can't find the answer. I wrote a book. You wrote a book. <laughs> you found it there. But I mean, I gather that most of the people in this room have come at least in a neutral sense to hear what we have to say without going to trash it before that. Maybe yeah. one or two have come otherwise. That's fine. You're all welcome. 
But we're not the ones we have to convince that if we say we've checked this out, we believe these are facts about something, and we want to report it to you without any of our own personal viewpoint uh, interfering with a hot, straight, and true uh, rendition. How do we get people who now believe that... Um, facts are facts. Well, no, that believe that uh, Hillary uh, had this uh, sex business at the pizza parlor for the young children. <laughs> they believe those kids were not actually killed in Connecticut. Those right. people believe that. They believe it because they've been told that and have no way and have no understanding of how to find other stories about that that could disagree with what they've been told and what they think. And they want to be smart. And they don't think they were smart, so they're smart to believe this. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I, I do point out, and I'll, I'll go to the book, and I'd love your all's comment on it, and, and, and Jim and, and Sam. And I, I said one of the things that, and we talked about this a little bit at lunch, the corporate climate has changed a lot in this country. It, it, news used to be a lost leader. Now it's some place to make profit, which kind of, if, we're, if we're geared toward profit, uh, capitalism being what it is, we're going to give you what you want so we can sell more of it and not what you need. And if you remove some of the um, – so we used to have guardrails like, you know, um, there was – Got so many guardrails. But you can still watch the news hour. It has a very small audience. Right. You can watch it if you want you to. You can choose to. You can yeah. choose to. But they People don't in choose room to. People understand what it is, but they don't even know it exists, let alone, no, I'm going to reject what, think what of, they say are facts. I, I would love to hear from Donald Trump again with the big lie. Do you think the fairness doctrine should be reintroduced? Of course. Yeah, that's Of course. That's the one Republicans got away with the fairness doctrine in the 80s. The Republicans, I don't have to be partisan, I'm not trying to be partisan, I'm trying to be factual, check it out, have done away whenever they could with any ability to restrain those horrible impulses that they think benefit them. And they think they benefit them because, excuse me, maybe this is a political opinion and maybe it's not correct, but they want to return to a white, Christian country that they believe existed and to some extent did exist because they believed that their interests and their, when I say their interests, they're good people. They'll give you the right hand of fellowship anytime you need it in other ways. I'm not talking about evil uh, monsters. We're not talking about Dr. Mengele here. <laughs> We're talking about people who want that Norman Rockwell paint those pictures. Have Bing Crosby sing White Christmas again. I like the song also. That's <laughs> not the country. And let me give you a statistic while I'm in this ramble. There are supposedly 8 billion people roughly in the world. I don't know how they counted them. 8 billion. Of the 8 billion, 11.1% are white. Now, if you think, apart from the morality of trying to exercise control over other people, that you can build a moat for your grandchildren around the west of the world, you are suicidal. You are not living in the changing times that are not going to be reversed. We're not going to go back in this country to where, well, you were talking about the commercialization. Right. When I started in the business, the networks had 98% of the audience. The news departments were not required to make money. In fact, they were very proud to say we have a news department here. It loses money, but it's serving the public interest. And now we'd like to talk to you advertisers about how we're <laughs> going to make our money. That's right. 
in the mid-70s, they came to us, the bosses, Leonard Goldenton at ABC and, and um, the, the Sarnoffs who were still running NBC, and of course, uh, helped me, CBS, uh, Bill Paley, right? and said it's time to make money because we don't have 98% of the audience, we have 85%. And with cable and today, we have about 53%. The ABC Evening News, which was a disgraceful number three, until I joined it. No, I'm seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> today, the three network newscasts combined have fewer viewers than the ABC Evening News had in 1965 or 66. And that's, you know, that we were talking about that at lunch, too. I can and have tweeted out a video from the North Lawn of the White House and gotten three million views on that particular piece of video before you could go live to tell people what had happened. Thanks a lot. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> so, but I think, I think Sam makes a good point, and, it, and I think it leads to or maybe circles back to the discussion that we're having, which is the dynamics of our business are always going to change. Yeah. Corporate ownership, right. who's in charge, you know, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, journalists at the White House, up on Capitol Hill here in Washington, or even across the country, if you have been watching lately what's been happening in L.A. County, where this L.A. Times reporter is being retaliated against by oh, the yeah. sheriff out there just for doing her job. I mean, that, I think, you know, if that were to go unchecked, would have a chilling effect on journalists out there. At the end of the day, no matter who's, you know, in the White House, who's in charge of these various news outlets and so on, there needs to be a baseline understanding that journalists just have to be able to do their jobs. Are we going to ask the question that you want to uh, have asked at, at home every day? No. But by and large, I would bet good money that Sam Donaldson, Brian Karam, and myself, on, and uh, the other reporters who are gathered here today, on a daily basis are thinking, hmm, what is the question that, you know, my mom would ask? Or what's right. the question that, you know, my neighbor Joe would ask? Or, you know, or hang on a second. Maybe they don't know what the best question to ask is, and I know what the best question to ask is, <laughs> and I'm going to ask that question. I think there, there's, and, and sometimes it's your colleagues that back at the right. office who might have a suggestion for a question. At the end of the day, journalists should be free to go in there, do their jobs, ask the hard questions without, you know, worrying about, uh, you know, somebody dropping a piano on us. I mean, that, that, that should be sort of a baseline understanding. And if we get away from that, if we think, you know, well, okay, I'm brushing my teeth, I've had my cornflakes. Gosh, I really hate that reporter on this particular network because they're always giving this administration a hard time. You know, I think you just have to check yourself at that point and say, hold on a second. They're doing this job, and, and this is not to put ourselves up on a pedestal, they're doing this job on behalf of the American But people, look what's right? happening the audience and its view of the press. No one ever likes the press. I didn't like the press. Right. When they said I was a <laughs> rancher that had a sheep and I'm getting a sheep subsidy from the federal government like all the other sheep ranchers. Why is it big money? I, mean, I didn't like them. Reporters came to me, but I understand that. And we both, all of three of yeah. us understand that. We've all been through it. We've all been through it. But I was very fortunate in a way when I was on the Brinkley panel and then Cokie and I were doing the Sunday show for ABC. And we give our opinions, carefully labeled at this, that segment as our opinions. And I'd duke it out with George Will most Sundays and he and I frequently, as <laughs> understatement, opposed each other and the views of policy and, and the, uh, many things going on. People told me they didn't like what I said and all that. But 
they said, but he's just dumb. In other words, Sam just didn't get it. Rather than he has a political agenda, he's really a communist, he's in the pocket of the Democratic Party. Most right. people didn't say that. They just said, well, George was smarter on that issue. I mean, he knew it better. Uh, today, the climate is such that even the best of reporters who try to do it right are just automatically accused by a large segment of the public of being wrong and having a sudden agenda. Right. And we do have an agenda of sorts. I mean, you know the old saw that you both know, we afflict the comfortable and comfort, comfort the afflicted. And, yeah. and that's the social issues, I suppose, to some extent. But you can't really be a reporter in the world and have traveled in the world. You've been to Ukraine, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Just you know, got back. You can't be and see that kind of thing without having a viewpoint. Yes, you try to keep it out of a straight news story, but you're not an Ottoman, you're not a robot, you're not somebody with no blood and, and no life experience. And it's true, I used to say to people, you can make your own definition of liberal and conservative and all the various factions, but I think it's true without knowing that most reporters at major organizations, and with exceptions of course, do have the same viewpoint about the LGBTQ community have a right to exist it's just like anybody else in this country. And, That's our views. Yeah. And we can report a story without and, and saying it, I think. But the point is, who do you want out there who's traveled the world with experience and been all these right. stories to try to look at a new news story and report the facts to you? Right. And, and somebody the who doesn't understand. know what a fact and, is, if they print them on the you-know-what. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam, and, and one of the things that I, just to jump off what you're saying, what, something that uh, the public needs to understand is, uh, you know, when folks in the White House come after us, they they may not necessarily think, I, I, I don't like what that guy said because I think he's got a hidden agenda. In some cases, in some circumstances, they may accuse us of that even knowing that that's not the case. All the time. Trump and, knows it. And Trump yeah. himself knows and, it. And yes. I will tell you, I will give you a quick story on that. When yeah, I, please. Um, just after he got into office, this was in February 2017, we had a press conference, his first main press conference in the East Room of the White House. Uh, he calls on people around the room, and the big question of the day is about the Russian investigation, and Mike Flynn, the national security advisor who ended up getting fired for lying to the vice president about his calls with the Russian ambassador, Sergei uh, Kislyak. Uh, so Trump comes to me, uh, calls on me, and I ask him, you know, about the Russia investigation and so on, and then I said, you know, Frankly, I'd like to ask you about the way you go after the press and whether or not that is damaging the public's view of the news media and harming the First Amendment. And we went back and forth and had this exchange, and I thought I was pretty polite, and he actually was not that bad, although he ended up calling me. He said, Jim, you know, I, I called you fake news. I think now I'm going to call you very fake news. And he thought, <laughs> well, let me just one-up the thing that I did before. And so... After the press conference is over, we're back in the break room, and I'm getting a Coke out of the Coke machine and, you know, using the facilities and whatnot, and I get a phone call, and it's a 202 blank number. And whenever it's a 202 blank number, that means the White House is calling. I answer the phone. It's Hope Hicks, Trump's right-hand person, his, his main aide that is always with him no matter what. And she goes, Jim, I just want you to know, I just spoke with the president, and he thought you were very professional today. And he goes, he goes, and Jim, he said, uh, he goes, and Jim gets it. That's what Donald Trump said. <laughs> Hope Hicks, he said it to me. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, out in front of the cameras, 
He's yes. calling me very fake news. But after the press conference is up, he thinks he's still on The Apprentice. Yeah. He thinks this is still a, he he thinks needs this is still a TV show. They, that's, that's exactly right. They need us more than, than we need them. Well, there's always something to cover. But those, the guys in the White House, they need us to put their word out. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. But I, you know, my, my response to that was, hey, I'm not a part of your contrived reality TV show out right. here. I'm here to do my job. I'm here to ask these questions, and you are accountable to us. That's the way it goes. And I, you know, you can dislike me, you know, not invite me to bowling night at the yeah. you know, at the Truman Bowling Alley, and so on. I'll live. Which I was told, invite anybody but Acosta. <laughs> when they had bowling night, they said invite anybody but Acosta. Hey, I don't need to do your bowling party. Yeah, you I know what I mean. I don't, I, you know. I don't want to see you cheat on a seven ten split. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, all their balls were going in the gutter, yeah, so to speak. And I'm not touching that line. Anyway. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, there was. Hey, you, yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously, as you probably know. Independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. I had a similar I had a similar experience. This was six weeks before the election, September 23rd of 2020. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting in the, I, by this time, COVID had taken over and they had limited the number of seats that were there. So 14 people could sit in the briefing room comfortably, according to the guidelines that we voluntarily in, installed upon ourselves. And I would come once a week because they, he always had his, his friendly news agents in the back. You know, it was always, I, you know, I can't remember who they are. I won't say, but you know, you know who they are. But uh, so I, I would stand back there and they would chime in, they would always call on him even though he didn't have a seat. Mr. President, why are you the greatest thing since cream cheese? And you know, and then he would go, yeah, yeah, I'm the greatest thing since, and I'd go, man, counter-programming, why are you lying to us? So I would stand back there and shout a question out. Well, that day, there was an empty seat. And I, it was either me or that other girl who could have sat there and I, I took the seat. And I didn't expect, but as I know you experienced, he didn't like us. And often we followed each other in, in press conferences. He'd ask the first question and get Trump pissed off, and then he'd call on me and get really super pissed off. Or I'd call, he'd call on me first, and the night you lost your press pass, he, pulled, I, I, they, he wouldn't answer my question, and they had already called on you. And I said, well, since it's Jim here, 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 have the microphone. And so, but Brian, I think the question that you asked that was the most important that was of, that the, day. of the questions that you asked during uh, Trump's time in office, and maybe you could tell us a story about it, why you decided to ask that question, is when you asked Donald Trump, will you commit yourself to a peaceful transfer, transfer of, of power? power. That was and that he day. would not 
answered. And that was the experience that I, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. That was, I sat down. I didn't think that he would call on me at all because he hates me. But I raised my hand and not only did he call on me, he called on me first. So the there had been a lot well, he of- He knew you would be the foil for him. Yes, exactly. play off yeah. of Yeah. So yes, because the second question he asked was about uh, he got asked about was Harry and and you know uh, Meghan Markle and he said you know, he did his best Rodney Dangerfield and said good luck to him he's going to need it, um, but I sat there and the first question I asked and I had heard as everyone had that if he didn't get the results he wanted in the election he would oppose those results. Right. So I asked it. I said win, lose or draw. Will you accept the outcome of the election and, and go to a peaceful transfer of power? What he did say that was chilling was, well, if you stop counting the votes, there won't be a transfer of power. There'll be a continuation, I think. Yeah, continuation like of, of the administration, which I, 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 I was floored. I, I, yeah. I can't ever imagine. Could you imagine any president you ever covered saying that? No. I, 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 I get, or thinking that. Or even thinking it, yes. I, I mean, I said, Nixon didn't have to worry about it because he knew he was going to be smashingly reelected. So he yes, could say anything he wanted. Yeah. But every president I've ever covered, and I've covered them all since Reagan, I, I can't imagine any one of them. Say, I was honestly, honest to God, floored at that. And afterwards, Bill Shiny was no longer in the White House, said that one time he said, you know, we don't know what's going on around here, Brian. Don't ask us. We're just sweeping up after the, you know, the elephant. But I, <laughs> I had a member of the administration call me and said, "Well, you know, that was a good question. Maybe he could have answered it better." But good, good job. And I was like, "You got to be kidding me." Well, and that was the thing that I encountered and experienced time and again, and that is that they did not want to think the worst. The people around him did not want to think that he was taking this all in a bad direction and, and they saw it all as well he's you know yeah he's having these exchanges with you guys it's not really what's going it's on all a it's, game. it's all a game it's how we fire up the base you know Steve Bannon one time told me he said uh, you know uh, the American people at home uh, they don't know who uh, this senator is or that congressperson is but they know who you are and if, if Trump is coming after you and calling you the enemy and, and so on that fires up our base that works with our people yeah. And so a lot of this was very strategic. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm kind of curious what Sam thinks about uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, and how do we get out well, of this? I, I, how do we get out of this mess, Sam? And I've got a like question for people, you, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think like most people, or I had no idea that something like that could happen. I was not, did not have a background. I mean, when I was five and a half feet away from John Hinckley Jr. when he shot Ronald Reagan and three other people, I knew that could happen. There had been precedents. But the fact that what happened to our capital, I was like everybody else sort of watching this thing, this horrible scene, and amazed, and where are the troops, and why aren't, why aren't these people stopped? But it shows what happened, has happened to the country and the fact that we are so divided that so many people can believe a Donald Trump who came to the presidency as an accident. He didn't run, he didn't want public service, he didn't dedicate his life to maybe serving this country. He did it as a stunt for money when he came down the golden and said the Mexicans are sending their rapists. He didn't think he was gonna be elected president of the United States. In fact, the night of the election, we are told by people who were with him, 
He was stunned and surprised that he was actually right. elected. Sean Spicer said that he left office that night thinking he had to find a new job the next morning. Yes, I mean, so here's a con man Ryan's, once in Ryan's always. previous said the same thing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him in 1991. Or 1990, rather. The word on the street was this guy, this uh, you know, well-known people in New York, was going broke because he couldn't service the debt. He'd bought an airline with borrowed money, the Plaza Hotel with borrowed money. Taj Mahal, he'd built $846,000 million of borrowed money, and he couldn't service the debt. So I did a long interview with him, but you should have heard him. I'll just tell you one little story from the interview. Because he'd called me rude during the time. He said, I didn't know anything about his business. What's borrowed money? He said, if you were smart, which you're not, you'd want to see my books. I said, sell the books. He <laughs> <laughs> said, I might consider doing that. Which I understand later was a practice line of his. I'm still yeah. waiting, of course. <laughs> so does the court. The princess yacht. Your point, uh, he knows. He's not, he's shrewd. Yeah. He's got a mind. It just works in a way to benefit him and him alone that the rest of us occasionally think of somebody else. Hello, dear. Nice to love you. you know, and all that. <laughs> the Princess Yacht, he said, I'm good. oh, by the way, Forbes magazine says I'm only worth $500 million. They didn't even count the Princess Yacht. He said, I bought it for $29 million. I put a little money into it to refurbish it. I'm going to sell it next week for $110 million dollars net net. I said, well, who's going who's gonna to buy it? He said, it's a trophy. I sell trophies. I mean, I said, yeah, it's not just a yacht. It's my trophy, and they want to buy it. I said, have you got the contract? He said, well, uh, yes. And I said, is it signed? Mm, the guy's going to sign it next week, and See, if he doesn't, five other people sign it. Okay, I'm six months later, he sold it for $20 million because he was out of money and he'd lost everything to Citicorp for this Plaza Hotel. And the only reason we know his name today is because a real billionaire, Carl Icahn, and I don't know that relationship, but for some reason, Carl Icahn assumed the debt of the Taj Mahal or he would have not just gone, he's had four bankruptcies so far, he would have had the final, that's it. Whatever dad left you, maybe $250 million is gone, and you're not going to make any more, goodbye, Donald J. Trump. Icon took the debt, which he finally relinquished about two years ago, and gave him a management company so it could still be called the Trump Taj Mahal. <laughs> he's been a con man from the beginning, thinking only of himself, and he's hurt so many people. And he's still hurting them because he's still, he didn't create the 30 or 35% of Americans who He's followed. exploited them. He's exploited them. He, yeah. he was the catalyst, though, that gave them the feeling that suppressed feelings about race. Yes. Yeah. they were, to, whoever they were, they're not going to say, well, they won't use words. But once he said it was okay to do that, hey, there they are, or about the LGBTQ or about anything else. Well, one of the things I want to uh, he is a talk man. on. Go ahead. No, I, I can't. Okay. <laughs> Fidel well, Castro dealt with his critics at the beginning. El Paradon. Look it up. I'm not advocating that. Yeah, I, I, I you get you. understand that? Yes, absolutely. You sure you understand I'm not advocating that? I understand that. Thank you. One, one of the things I do want to touch on is something that we've talked about tangentially. Uh, uh, Jim and Sam both mentioned it. And, 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 and Sam, you were talking about it. You know, you did you sign the contract? It was the follow-up question. Yeah. It's the experience that you have. You started in local news. I started in local news. You started in local you news. Bet. 
today, and this is a true story, and I know that you know this to be a fact, and you probably do as well. I've run into reporters in the White House who come up to me and ask me for directions. You know, how do I do this? Can I go upstairs and talk to the president? And, I, and I've asked, I said, uh, what experience did you have before you came here? None. Straight out of college into the White House. No experience. The experience that you have asking a follow-up question, listening to answers, how to track, I mean, most of us know that, you know, the briefing is a room where you can ask questions in a public setting, but that's not how you cover the White House. That's, that's how you, you're on TV. And, and I was there before they were even televised, right. as we you were. Have, we didn't have television. No, we would, we would go in in the morning, and the first time I got there, instead of getting everything by email, remember the teletype machines that would spit out all the, it, it would just spit out all the, the pool stuff, and you'd have a ream of paper like this that you'd have to shuffle through. And you could drive up to the, the door of the White House, uh, right, right there in the briefing room, unload your equipment, then drive off and park in the ellipse can't do any of that anymore. We all used to shoot our stand-ups under one tree. I remember the light trees that were everywhere, and now there's all the little huts. But the point, you know, this that's memory stuff, but we all came up having to have experience before we got there. Today, because of the, uh, I think, and I make the point in the book that when I got in the business, 80% of what you see, read, or hear was controlled by about 20 companies. Today, six companies control what 90% of a C reader here. And that's meant a reduction of the number of reporters at the White House and diversity, a reduction in diversity, and a reduction in pay. You know, I used to have five or six years experience before you could go anywhere. Now they'll hire you straight out of school and, and then they're gonna spit you out. <laughs> Some of them get spit out after three or five years and they hire somebody cheaper. So I, I don't know the total answer to this, but do you see a problem with a lack of experience uh, and, and we should note, we did tell the audience they would have a chance to ask. Yes, yeah, I'll have, yeah. Yeah, experience not required. Experience not required. Um, I, you know, I do think there is some of that, I, I do think some of the youthful energy there is a good thing. Yes. And uh, we need somebody to teach some of us old dogs how to use Twitter and Instagram <laughs> yeah. and things like that. And TikTok, TikTok. and yeah. <laughs> By the way, did you buy Twitter last Friday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Forty-four million uh, billion. billion. It's, just, yeah. it's just a billion. It's just a billion here or there, right? Took up a collection at church. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do think that it was a good experience for me to have to come up in local news because I, you know, I would learn how to cultivate sources. I worked at City Hall and various markets and covered uh, the police department. You know, I worked in uh, Dallas as a local reporter and and actually went into the would go into the garage at the police station where uh, Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald and. You know, you do develop a healthy appreciation for things that have come before you, and and but also you can make your mistakes early on. That's right. Where it doesn't kill your career. Yeah. In right. the sense that millions saw you make a fool of yourself or do something that was unprofessional. And we won't mention any names. <laughs> no, we won't mention any. Names. <laughs> but but yeah. No, yeah, I, I I do think it's it's a valuable thing. But at the same time, you know, I think we're now in a media landscape where. Uh, folks are coming out of the college. They're going to websites uh, instead of newspapers and TV yeah. stations. And Everyone, I don't have a podcast. Yeah. Do you two have a podcast? Yes. All right. I, I don't have a podcast. Well, I, I mean, everybody's just ask doing the a question. Podcast. Go ahead. People, <laughs> my good People friend think Charlie I talk too much Gibson, who's been yeah. an ABC anchor for several years, uh, has got a got a podcast going. He's and a I great. want his list to watch the first the the first the first. Uh, 
what do you call it? Not an issue. That's a newspaper term. But the first something of the podcast. Yeah. The first pod segment. Yeah. I don't see. This is why we need the young people around. We don't. Yeah. You know, first episode. We need help with the term. Terminology. Episode. You want well, to I, see if anybody has any questions? Yeah, I, I, I want, I want to finish up with one other thing. There's, I know you all have questions. I, I, I'd like to think Before about more dinner, please. Yeah, I like, to, <laughs> like to think about what we can do yeah. to change the business that we're in, not just the mm -hmm. politicians. But I do. If you have questions, let's let's go with those. Yes. So how is Jen Psaki doing in the Biden administration in terms of back to normal? Um, I'm still there. Um, it is back to normal, uh, it, as much as normal c you can get back to. Um, I have a problem with every administration. Does every administration warrant the criticism that we gave Donald Trump? No. This is the kind of criticism that you would give a normal administration. I would like them to be more forthcoming. I think the biggest problem in the um, Biden administration are, are not his actions, but his communications. Um, I'll go back to Poland when he came out and said, and I was, I was there, man. He, he comes out and he says, look, for God's sakes, this man can't remain in power. He's, I had Trumpers calling me up on, a, on an app who had gone in country to help because they went there because Zelensky said, I don't need a, a ride, I need ammunition. And they're going like, rah, rah. And, that, and then what, what Biden said fired them up. And five, ten minutes after he said that, his staff walked it back, and it wasn't him. We found that out later in the briefing room. That wasn't him that walked it back. In fact, the next day he doubled down on it. But what he did was what his staff did in their effort to control the press and control access, which they have done remarkably well, better than any administration I've ever seen as far as controlling access, not returning in emails, limiting people. Uh, they're trying to cut down on his gaffes, but what they're doing is hurting his ability to communicate with the people. One of the things that I give Donald Trump credit for was the fact that he knew, as we've all said, shrewd. He knew how to manipulate, even as he was calling us enemy of the people, how to suck up all the air in the room. Well, he's a great communicator. What he communicates it's his crap. I denounce, <laughs> yes. but he is a terrific communicator. And I wish that Biden were a better communicator because they don't take up all the bandwidth. They leave a lot of room out there for the crazies who are still taking up the rest of the room. You buy this book called Free the Press and yeah, read the answers. And That's a great question. I don't know. People ask me the question. I'm supposed to be this smart guy with experience about politics and all that. How do you take people? In the old days, they watched us. They accepted that we did our best to be factual. And, and, and uh, since they had no alternative that was telling them no, they, 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 we said the apple fell down. They didn't think it would fall sideways or up. Now, they've been listening to people who've told them, on the internet, you can find there was no Holocaust. That was all made up. Lyndon Johnson orchestrated the assassination of John F. Kennedy. You could find all of that stuff. That's not true? Yes, and, and, and young people particularly, but people, again, I, I don't mean just rural people. I was born in the country, <laughs> all of this. 
I'm not denouncing them because they're not reading the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. But if they're just watching Fox or they're just watching the new ones that are making Fox look like the moderate in, in the country, yeah. how do you tell them, how do you reach them? How do you make them listen? How do you, can you call them up yeah. and say, my name is Acosta and I just want to answer any question? No. I tried that with Marjorie to, Taylor Greene. You're not going you know. to do it. <laughs> you know, I do think that... But you um, have an answer. I, I, I think I have a little bit of an answer, and that is I think we just have to keep the conversation going. I mean, well, we, yes, we, live, we live in a... Well, hold on. We live in a place right now uh, where majority of the Republican Party does not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected the president of the United States. Yeah. That is, that is not a good thing. And as Sam was saying a few moments ago, uh, people have been believing conspiracy theories ever since there have been people. I mean, I remember when I one of my very first jobs here in Washington right out of college was answering the phones at Channel 5 here in Washington. And back in those days, if somebody was irate with the, the covers that you had, they would call the assignment desk and they would scream at you on the phone. And I would take calls from those folks. <laughs> Occasionally, yeah. Sam would call, calling for his wife. <laughs> yes, well, that's right. Jan Smith was a reporter yeah. there when I worked there many years ago. And, uh, and so... Um, no, but uh, but what's happened today is that now that, that now those conspiracy theories can live on social media and people can cocoon themselves in the, sort of these disinformation silos where that's all the information that they get. And, you know, the reason why I do this event, the reason why Sam speaks out, Brian speaks out, is because I we just have to keep the conversation going. And as maddening as it is you want to tear your hair out, you really do have to try to talk to your neighbors, your relatives, your friends, people who put stuff on Facebook that doesn't make any sense and say, you know, what you're saying doesn't comport with the facts. Why is it that you believe something that you got from your Aunt Edna on Facebook over what the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, all of the networks, uh, well, you know, what they're reporting that, you know, you have to think about. It. And I think you just we just need to on an individual level keep that conversation going. And I know I, as frustrating as it is, well, the, the thing that I always say to people is we just have to outlast this there you moment. Go. We just have to outlast it. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll go a step yeah. further, though. I, I think there is an answer that we all should get behind. And I'll start with this. <clears throat> Subscribe to your local newspaper. Oh. Let me tell you something. There is a yeah. information desert in this country. You don't have to go any farther than uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, to see how, when I first got here, <clears throat> there were the Gazette, the Sentinels, the Journal, and the Washington Post all covered Montgomery County. There's no coverage there today. There's no newspaper. Newspapers are dying. You want to know why? Not because they're not valuable. It's because we've killed them. And we've killed them. It, the businesses have killed them. They've bought themselves up. Hedge funds have bought up hundreds of newspapers, shrunk the staff, and reduced these newspapers to crap. And the problem is, is a lot of national news gets its start in a city council room, in, in uh, 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 go to a school, local school, go to your local pool uh, board. That's where a lot of this news begins. And it's a local reporter who finds it, <clears throat> and it's national news that finds the link and sees that it's going on all over the place. We don't have newspapers. And why are they important? Well, we talked about how you can go on the internet and find anything that you want. I can pick up a phone, and if I'm good, I can hack whatever news is out there and change it, right? And that's one of the reasons why we don't believe everything that we see, because we know damn well that I can go on the computer and change it. Now, I have a collection of newspapers at home. 
that go back to, I've got a hundred and some odd front pages of newspapers going back to 1812. I can pick up that newspaper from 1812. You cannot hack it. It isn't changed. It's valuable for history. It's printed today the same as it was then. That has weight in a court of law. That has weight historically. That has weight as information goes. You know if it's wrong, you can find out it's wrong. You'd know that it hasn't been changed. So you know what? Go support your local newspapers and buy one and read them because that's how we build and get out of the newspaper desert and the news deserts that we live in. Good. Well said. Well said, Brian. Go ahead. Um, Jim, if I understood you correctly, you seem to indicate that if the audience knew you better, that the reaction when you go out in the field would not be as... Um, hostile? Hostile. <laughs> would not be as hostile. Um, is Engaging. It, is that correct? I think that's part of it. I'm not saying that's the whole thing. Um, I, I do think that, you know, for I, I, what I, the one of the stories that I try to tell uh, folks, if they care to listen, is, you know, I, I grew up in this area. I'm, I'm a native of this area. My mom was born at the Washington Women's Hospital. Uh, my dad is a Cuban refugee. Uh, when he came to this country in 1962, three weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, he and my grandmother landed in Miami, but they moved up to the Washington, D.C. area and settled in northern Virginia. And the stories that I hear from my dad about being a Cuban refugee back in those days, and, and in Virginia, I'm sure it wasn't always a pretty picture. But he would tell me about how you know there would be this elementary school teacher who would pull him out of the classroom every day and teach him how to read and write English. And uh, he would tell me about the local Presbyterian church that donated coats and sweaters and clothes to my dad and my grandmother uh, because they had to get through their first winter. You know, there was. There wasn't any cold weather down in Cuba. Uh, it was cold here in Washington. And, you know, that was the immigrant experience that I had growing up. And so, yes, I, you know, when I covered Donald Trump, I took exception to the way he described uh, migrants coming into this country as being part of an invasion or that they were rapists and criminals and so on. And when people say, well, you know, why is it that you're giving Trump a hard time about this kind of stuff or giving Stephen Miller a hard time about what they want to do with immigration? And I say, listen, it's you know, part of it is because of the experience that I come from, that I am the son of a Cuban refugee. Now, just because I'm the son of a Cuban refugee, I'm a proud Cuban American. I, I don't want America to become more like Cuba. I'd like Cuba to become <laughs> more like the United States of America. But I, I do think that, you know, when we succumb to what, you know, folks who are not on board with the First Amendment and not on board with the free press in this country, when we succumb to their tactics to demonize us and, and turn us into the enemy, I do think we are cheating ourselves as Americans because, uh, that, you know, getting back to Brian's story about, you know, why I go down and engage with people at the rallies and so on, I want them to get to know me as an individual and not you know, buy into that segment they saw on Fox or, or buy into what they're hearing from the, the guy in, in charge over at the White House. You know, there are people just like me. They may not be, they may not come from an immigrant background. They may come from a different background. But as individual people, I can tell you, all the journalists that I know who cover the White House, cover Capitol Hill, they're working their butts off. They're doing their damnedest to do a good job on a regular basis. Are we perfect? No. Do we sometimes get things wrong and screw up? Yes. But the, at the end of the day, everybody is working to do what Carl Bernstein would describe it as, trying to arrive at the best um, 
example of the truth as possible to provide to the American people. As we like to say in Washington, I have a follow-up. Um, I've never heard that before. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. In his heyday, oh, I'm sorry. We've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> sorry if that took too long. That took too long. Yeah. In his heyday, though, when Sam was co-hosting um, the, the Sunday show, you would see Sam six times a week. Sometimes in a news cycle, I see you six times a day. What is the Well, you saying you don't like him? No, I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying what's the disconnect? Well, I don't know if that's the case so much anymore. Maybe when I was covering the, the Trump White House. Yeah, but, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm saying when you were covering the White House. Yeah. Um, that I'd see you six times a day. I only see him six times a week. You mean on CNN, you'd see me on six times a day? Yes, exactly. I'd do six live shots, sure. Right, Absolutely, right, right. yeah. But I don't know if, if uh, Sam went out to a rally in a presidential campaign, if he would get the same reaction from people who saw you versus the people that, that are watching him? Well, that might be a good question for Sam. I know they gave you a hard time from time to time uh, inside various administrations and so on. But I never had to experience anything. I've touched on the fact that no president ever said to me or to my bosses, fire him, he's no good, or I don't like him, or what have you. No, you said that, though. Fire them? <laughs> no, you, when you walked in. I, I love that story. You should tell that story. When you walked in with Helen and opening up ABC, it, it's not Jermaine. Okay, <laughs> still good story. Well, I guess, I guess what's what, the point? The point being, no, the the point the point here is, the whole atmosphere has changed. Again, people have uh, don't like the press. They don't like to you say something against one of their political heroes, even though you're reporting a fact. They think you're, but they normally used to trust us basically. Now they don't trust a large segment of the American public, won't even listen. Yes. You say, keep doing what we're doing. I agree. Good reporters continue the job of trying to tell it straight and getting the facts. But the lady back there has asked, how do we get these people who don't believe that to see the truth, to see the facts? And I don't know, and I don't think any of us really knows. And well, it's again another cruel thing to say, and this one I'll say. The actuarial table will take care of it, I hope. <laughs> well, in that, in that young people don't always follow their prejudices that their parents taught them before they were seven or eight. And, and they are the hope that as they see the world as it exists, not as the mythical world they think they want back, they will change it. We've got time for two more, don't worry. I, I'm, I just want to follow up real quick, and I know we have two. But I think your, the story was, Jermaine, in this regard. It shows the difference between then and now. And to your Can question. Can I tell it quickly then? So yeah, you yeah. Twice yeah. Engaged me. All right. <laughs> Ronald Reagan came to dedicate the building in, on the sales street that is the ABC News Bureau today. Hey, if you had a bar mitzvah, he'd be there if you invited him. He was, for good reasons. And he was there, and the owner of ABC, the man who had founded it, Leonard Goldenton, was there so proudly. And Rune Arledge, the head of our news department, was there so proudly. And Helen and I and other reporters were there. And Reagan came, and he said, So Helen and I started in on him. Because that day, the story had been that his budget director, David Stockman, was take, had told the facts about the first budget and had blown the whistle on this mythical idea that we could cut all our taxes and never have to pay for it, what have you. So backstage, 
I am told on good authority and have several witnesses. The moment we got back there, one of Reagan's top guys said to Leonard Goldenson and to Rune Garland, you mousetrapped us. Here we came with the President of the United States has come and uh, your invitation, you turned it into a news conference to embarrass him and all of that. And Ted Koppel, was also backstage, tell the look in Leonard Goldenson's eyes was that <laughs> that was the end of me until Reagan spoke out. Oh, no, he said, don't worry about it. That's a Sam, it's okay. And that's, <laughs> but see, that's a different, there is a different, to your point, seeing him more versus, it's, it's the um, animus inside government today and among the electorate. What Sam did. The lady asked, yeah, how do we change it? How do, and we I. We all acknowledge it. it. We all acknowledge, but that's, to your point, that's the difference. And to your point, to change it, yes, media literacy is a big part of it. And so is clearing, cleaning up the news deserts. You had a question. I have a question. So I'm a sophomore studying political communication at GW, but I was wondering as. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> um, as a uh, journalist, how do you toe the line between reporting the words of some political elites, truthful or not, or at what point are you giving them a platform to spread like these conspiracies or other beliefs to the public? We'll start with Jen. I mean, I, I think that uh, that's a very good question. And I, I do believe that at the end of the day, you know, we, we've got to just hold these folks accountable. They have to be, you know, sort of put through the ringer to some extent. You know, we have to ask the hard questions. And I, you know, I think that that's essentially what we're doing on a daily basis. Maybe you have an example of where. Uh, like in the 2008 election, a lot yeah. of media was reporting on comments by Trump about the whole birther conspiracy. Right. And I think a lot of people today might point to that as had the media not given attention to that at all, maybe the conspiracy of Obama's birthplace wouldn't have even been a big media attention, and I, people might have not even believed that conspiracy. For I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I do think that that got a lot of attention, and it's interesting that you bring that up because it was 11 years ago almost to this day where Barack Obama needled the Donald at the White House Correspondents' Dinner for the whole birth certificate yeah. issue. And that was when, you know, he was saying, well, maybe uh, maybe uh, Trump will get to the bottom of the moon landing and all of this other stuff. Uh, and Biggie and Tupac, I think he yeah. said something along those lines, too. Um, but, you know, I do think, and just recently, Barack Obama gave this speech out in Stanford talking about the dangers of misinformation. What's interesting is that he was sort of, you know, the one of the very first recipients uh, or targets of that kind of pernicious, intentional, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. Yes. Pernicious disinformation, information that is put out there that is false for the specific purpose of hurting somebody politically. That is what happened to Barack Obama. And I do remember when I worked at the White House covering Barack Obama, uh, that to some extent um, his folks didn't take Trump seriously enough. And I remember being at gatherings where they would say, oh, there's just no way he could become president. There's, you know, that, Hillary's yeah. got it in the bag and so on. And I would, you know, I was like, you know, I've been out to, out to some of these events. I'm not so sure you're right what you're saying. And I do think to a large degree, uh, a lot of folks here in Washington um, did not take this threat seriously enough. And now here we are, I think, in a very difficult position where you have uh, wide segments of American society just I think being preyed upon by people who have, you know, we, just sort of bad faith intents. You know, yeah. We need to re-examine two propositions that we think are sacred. 
I hope everyone in the room thinks the First Amendment, with its five freedoms guaranteed that the government will make no law and interfere with, are sacred. The kind of misinformation that we've been talking about here now today, not just differences of opinion, or even stupid things that people do or say, who would want to ban them? Fine. We need to wonder about the First Amendment, and there are some curtailments on it. You can't incite to riot, for instance, just because it's free speech and things like that. And the second proposition is one I think most of us in the news business, or those who are in the news business, are re-examining. That we need to be impartial. If you say the apple falls down, and you say it falls sideways, we should give, hey, he says it, he says it. Now we can then say most scientists believe that he's right, but the point is, no, we don't need right. to be impartial on some things. The Holocaust happened. Should we be Man impartial on, on what's happening in the Ukraine today? They've both been there. Yeah. I've been there. They see it. And, uh, oh, well, uh, the Russians say that uh, it didn't happen. In, you know, uh, no. I'm, uh, I thoroughly approve of something that a few years ago I would have been against, I suppose. Just calling lies, lies. Just say, they say the apple falls sideways, but most scientists believe it. You can test it to go in the backyard and, you know. We don't need to sign on to being impartial when it comes to the facts versus the fiction that hurts and kills people and damages their lives and this country's future. We gotta be on the side of the country that we think we are still building opportunity for everyone. When Reagan left the presidency, he said that if there have to be walls around the country, they should have doors into which everyone can be admitted who's willing to become good citizens of the country. I'll, uh, I know one I'll, I'll make my answer to this question real quick. Bet the facts. Don't worry about being first on the air with bullshit. Be first on the air with the facts. So that's what a reporter does. Don't give in to the impulse to go on because, oh, somebody else is there live. I Covering the Waco standoff, the Waco tragedy, I was standing there, it was day three in Waco. And there, and I won't say which network it was, but uh, they, 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 they were going on the air saying, it's over with, this is over, the Waco uh, standoff is over. And I was getting urged to go live and say, that and I wouldn't do it because I couldn't verify it with my own eyes. As it turns out, it was a shift change of, of, the, of, the, of the first responders who were leaving and they go, we see baby, I'm going, I don't see any of this shit. I'm standing right where this guy is and I don't see it. Don't report it. They, they resist the urge to be first for the sake of ratings and be first with the, with the facts. Well, I, and I also think we're also, we're also learning as we go. I mean. You know, having the experience of covering Trump out on the campaign trail, I think, prepared me for that infamous press conference that he had at Trump Tower in August of 2017 when he said there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. Yes. I was the person that asked the question that prompted him to say that. And after he said that, I said to him, not in the form of a question, I said it as a statement of fact, there are no fine people in the Nazis. I said that to him because, to me, it was not a, we, you know, we can't say, oh, well, on one side, it's like what Sam was saying, yeah. on one side, they're okay, and on the other side, and, okay you know, too. You I, I mean, give me yeah. a break, but I do think to some extent you have to understand we're, we are human beings, and maybe we got suckered that first time on the whole birther thing, but I think reporters, slowly but surely, maybe not quickly enough over time, got wise to his game, yeah. and, and I think that's why you saw 
the coverage Some changed and become quicker. much more and become you know a lot tougher as the administration went on and it needed to happen. La last question over there. I know time is short, so let me ask a very narrow question about the Secret Service no. and access. <laughs> <laughs> and it might not be able to answer. Draw into yeah. a, a larger uh, pattern of what is being discussed. Now, uh, much of the focus and probably in your book is about access to the president, to the top staff, the presidential uh, press secretary and so forth. But on a routine basis, the Secret Service probably uh, has a lot of impact on what people can do. I know even at the courthouse, some of us reporters see a big difference in how the marshals treat the public and the reporters. So here's my very specific question. Um, it's rumored mostly on the internet that one of the top supervisors of the Secret Service took time out during the campaign to work for the Trump campaign. And then he supposedly came back to work currently at the Biden White House. Is, is, this, is this an issue? Is Are you talking about Tony Renato? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that I have not done. I have not done the personal reporting on that. I know that I Carol Lennig over at the Washington Post has done a lot on that. I would defer to her reporting I on that. I, I I would defer to that, and I would only say this: I've never, in fact, the Secret Service a couple of times. Like I, I had someone lay hands on me in the, and, and we know what happened when someone tried to lay hands on you during, when you were there. I mean, he fired up on them, and poof, they went away. Uh, but. I had people lay hands on me during the Trump administration, and the Secret Service came to my aid. Um, I've never had a problem. You know, there are certain places you're not allowed to go in the White House. You, know, you can't just walk into the Situation Room and go, oh, look who you're going to bomb. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, I've never had a problem with the Secret Service as, as a reporter, ever. Yeah, I've admired them. Jerry yes. Parr saved Reagan's life by seeing the blood from a lung room. But their job is the physical protection of the president. Yep. But many White House staffs that I've encountered want to make their job a political protection for the president. They need to be kept back there, keep the reporters back there. It's not their job. They have to almost go along with it for the most part. But after Reagan was shot, Mama, uh, Mrs. Reagan, gave a strict instruction that will never happen again. Magnetometers were put in. Uh, Reagan never went anywhere in public that the public hadn't been properly screened, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. Until 1984, when he was up for re-election, and suddenly he started walking around in unscre unscreened crowds two or three times. The Secret Service hated that because <laughs> obviously they feared uh, the problem of physical safety, but the staff insisted on it, and they had to accede to it. I'm for the Secret Service. I know nothing yeah. about this particular case, but if some of the reporting is true, that gentleman, if I were Joseph Biden, would not be on my protection. <laughs> and with that, should we have yeah. a beverage over here? Uh, anyway, that, any other questions? I listen. No, I think I, we. I, oh, you already asked one. I'm gonna. You, I got, you can give, I gotta, I yeah, go. I want to thank everybody for showing up, and um, I thank. I look like I said. I, I appreciate everything Sam has done over the years. I appreciate what my buddy in the trenches uh, did and still does. 
Jim, these guys are great. And I am the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> <laughs> Marley, I knew him. <laughs> and I, I, You're rattling your chains there, pal. <laughs> and I've got, a, I've got a show on the weekends if anybody yeah, wants to tune he's in. He's still please, on please uh, CNN on the weekends. I don't please have a podcast, tune. but I have a show. <laughs> and I'm still at the White House, still writing a column for Salon.com. And with my wife, we're planning spring roses and flowers now. The weather in Mount So thanks for joining us. Thanks for Libations coming. available. Uh, make yourself, avail yourself of the libations. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. And we'll be happy to cruise around and talk a little bit. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast.